I'm already a star. Huh. You are? Yeah. What have you been in? Nothing yet. Who's your contract with? Don't have one. Okay, yeah. Uh, I think you want to become a star. Honey, you don't become a star. You either are one or you ain't. I am. This is the proper setting. Why, it's just an empty stage. At first glance, yes. But wait a second. A beautiful sunset. Mist from the distant mountains. Colored lights in a garden. A lady is standing on her balcony in a rose trellised bower. One day, every person on every film shot this year will be dead. And one day, all those films will be pulled from the walls. And all their ghosts will dine together, and adventure together, go to the jungle to war together. A child born in 50 years will stumble across your image flickering on a screen and feel he knows you like, like, like a friend. Though you've breathed your last before he breathed his first. Smiling through it, she said she'd do it again. And here we are doing it again. We are three euros per movie. I'm Bia from Portugal. I'm George from Austria. And I'm Crit from the UK. And today we are talking Babylon. Singing in the Rain, and La La Land. And of course, first up, we have Babylon. Great movie. <laughs> amazing movie. I was actually too excited yesterday. I don't want to call it a masterpiece, because I... But that's my feeling. Yeah, that's my feeling right there. A wow. Masterpiece. masterpiece. What? Yeah. So you gave it a 10? It's not perfect, okay? There would be some things that I would, like, tweak, but they're minor. like. The length of the movie, I didn't feel it. I acknowledge that some people might feel that it's a little bit too much, mm -hmm. but... Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, no, keep going, keep going. <laughs> this is interesting. Some people might think that it's a little bit too much, but <laughs> I was enjoying <clears throat> that right. There are some parts that could be, I don't want to say cut out, but maybe just keep it short yeah so it's been a few weeks since i watched this i i was really excited for this movie i'm a big damien chazelle fan i have rated all the three movies hit it prior to this highly and i was hugely disappointed i think this oh, movie no. has a lot oh, of troubles no. <laughs> crit, crit already scared i think this movie has a lot of problems my main issue with the movie is that, in my opinion, this had nothing new to offer that no. Damien Chazelle himself in prior films or other people hadn't already done before. There's many themes that he already kind of worked through in my mind, through his movies Whiplash and La La Land in particular. There's things that he blatantly took from earlier movies. I think we have gone too far to really call it just inspiration anymore. I think this movie 
oh, this movie felt to me like it had, like it had nothing left to stand for on its own. What? Where if you know the prior movies he's referencing, you don't really get anything. And I also don't think this movie fully fulfilled on the premise that it was sold to me. I, I think that's more of a marketing problem than the movie's fault itself, but it also made me expect something else. Mm -hmm. I think what the movie marketing is trying to sell it as is this big, dirty look behind the curtains of Hollywood. And I don't think it ever really was. I disagree. I think that that part... Uh, so, as you know, I'm not a big into keeping up with the marketing of movies and the way they're publicized. Because I, I often think that might ruin my experience towards the movie. So, I disagree on the point that it didn't touch on that dirtiness and that rawness from behind the scenes of uh, the film industry. I think it did that and more. Like, especially in the first part of the movie, there's this uh, exposition to what old Hollywood was doing and the way they did it and how stars would take their careers and their art I think it just transitioned from that into the downfall of that era, but it still did a good representation. I think that Damien Chazelle did a, a thorough research on the subject. Yeah. Um, George, I think you're on crack. <laughs> right. So let me just quickly address. One of your points was that you think that it's so derived that it kind of has nothing to offer on a standalone basis, right? That the... Uh, what it's taking from doesn't, right? Mm -hmm. M huge disagree. Huge. Because, not to really spoil anything, but obviously it takes huge inspiration from Singing in the Rain. But mm -hmm. that inspiration only really comes in to play for one character in this film, for Brad Pitt's character. But oh, for Margot what? Robbie's character... No. I disagree. It's a little bit for Margot's, but not fully. It's a little fully. bit, but not, not massively. Fully. Yeah. Not massively, because obviously the the whole idea of the movie is the transition, right, between the silent picture, uh, silent picture era to the talky era, right? Mm -hmm. Which Margot Robbie's coming in on that era, whereas Brad Pitt's character is the one that has to make that transition the same way, you know, that... Gene Kelly's character does in Singing in the Rain. So I see that parallel hugely for that character. It's only minor there for Margot and the overall picture, obviously. I think Margot Robbie greatly resembles uh, the Gene Hagen character. So mm -hmm. the, yeah. the person who couldn't sing. Yeah, and that oh, couldn't I speak correctly. Disagree. How not? There's like this small part of her that like fully resembles um yeah there, there's a scene character. taken from <laughs> singing in the rain with that character and inserted into this movie like obviously because beat. they're going to apply that to whatever but she's much closer to debbie reynolds character than anything in the coming up maybe in, like coming right. up into the scene but yeah in singing in the rain right that character 
They don't want her to speak because her voice is irritating, not because she can't speak properly. No, no, no. She also cannot speak pro properly. That's why they had the um, the dictator. Oh, it's not dictators, <laughs> but the dictation. Um, yeah, but 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 but, but, but yeah, you can't do that because they do that for everybody because that was the style. That was that was the accent that they tried to apply to all actors back then, not just specifically her. So I don't think that counts. But but in Babylon, Jack Conrad, the Brad Pitt Brad Pitt's character. He didn't have that type of training. We see more that on the um, Nelly's side, so Margot, uh, Margot's character. So she's the one that goes into this special training because the way she speaks is not uh, posh. It's yeah. not yeah. correct. And that, only play, that not only plays a role outside of the movies, but also inside, right? However, however... I think that's them applying what happens to Gene Kelly because Gene Kelly also gets that training in that film, by the way. I think that's what they're applying to Nelly, not specifically the the female applying to the female because because the only re the only reason Brad Pitt's character doesn't get that training is because he doesn't successfully make the transition. The point is he fails at making the transition. It's basically over for him. So why would yes, he get the training? Because the no one believes him. No, yeah, but no it, one it believes he could do it. So you can't say like, oh yeah, it applies to Nelly because she gets it when, you know, Jack Conrad or whatever his name is, doesn't get it because he specifically doesn't get it because he's not believed in. He's going to fail. So he wouldn't get it regardless. It's not that he's specifically any better. In Singing in the Rain, both Gene Kelly's character and uh, I've forgotten her name again, her character both get the training, not because... It would make more sense if Gene Kelly didn't get it, then I would understand. But he they does. They do get both the so training. So I don't see the parallel. Yeah, they do both get the training, yes, but Gene Kelly is basically instantly acing it to the degree where by the end of that scene they make a musical number that is just making fun of the tutor. Uh, whilst uh, the, the female character in Singing in the Rain is struggling with it to the degree where it's still even on set a problem. And here in Babylon, you have Margot Robbie struggling with her accent, so she gets the tutoring training, so she can, as Thea point, uh, put it, she can be posh in the eyes of the others, and she's still tr struggling to a certain degree with that way after that, so that the tutor is still around her at that one party scene. Yeah. Okay, fair. But also, also, on that point, Margot Robbie gets uh, the training for a different reason. So, the character in Singing in the Rain gets it to be in movies, right? For Isn't it the transatlantic accent or something like that? Yeah. Um, yeah I forget the name so. of the accent, but it was like the, the mm -hmm. accent that yeah, it was all one. going for back then. Yeah. yeah. Um, but Margot Robbie gets it for her personal life. It's not for the movies. Because movie-wise, she's doing fine. In her personal life. I mean, life, if she cannot speak outside yeah, no, of the movies, she cannot do it like, inside not, of the movies, right? Yeah, but she does not get taught the transatlantic accent in Babylon. She gets taught how to speak kind of upper English accent because it makes you seem more distinguished because she has an awful image. So people wanted to make her make her seem more distinguished. That's why she goes to that party. I, 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 I do not disagree with that part. I think... There's mm -hmm. just this duality where that part is also being uh, trained for the movies because if she not if she cannot do it outside of the movie she won't be able to do it inside 
right? I know, but what I'm saying is it's a different accent that she's being taught. So it's not like she's going to translate that accent to the movies anyway. That's not the accent she would use in I the don't movies. Th- I don't think... I think you're applying way too much historical accuracy to Babylon here. I think that might just be a thing of updating source material, basically. Because it's not like Babylon is a completely history-accurate movie. We have, in the soundtrack, we have, like, uh, four on-the-floor beats within there. So we're in the 20s here. Oh, no. Yeah, this is this is all I'm trying to say. It, uh, I don't think it's too easily drawn a parallel simply because they're teaching her a different way of speaking for a different reason you know it's not for the movies mm-hmm. it's for her social life because her social life is in the toilet because she's such a party animal and blah 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 that people don't respect her anymore and they don't think she's a lady so she has to mm-hmm. learn to be yes. a lady yeah. rather than be an actor that as well yeah. because she already has the actress part done you know I mean, I agree for for the part. Like, I totally see that the reasons are different uh, for the stories. I see that they are being taught a different thing. I think the end result is still the same. Where you say Margot Robbie has the acting side just figured out and that's all taken care of. To me, whilst watching it, it felt like that was a necessary step she had to make to keep her job as an actress which is the same situation the original character is in. I mean, maybe, but I still don't really see it. I feel like that's massively clutching at straws. I don't think, I don't think the jump like, is that big, but... Saving her social life obviously saves her job. But she's still, at the end of the day, the main goal is to save the social life, the image. Yeah, to save her job. <laughs> That's... You know, like... <laughs> yeah, but it's not its not direct enough. Yeah, I guess. Like, for you to... Because, obviously, in your original point was... Because we have gone massively off track here. But yeah, yeah the, the original point was that this film <laughs> is basically... Adds nothing original. I'm not saying to... that it adds nothing original to Singing in the Rain. My problem is more that... All the other stuff that people might feel like are original, are, I, I just have seen everything this movie does somewhere else better. I don't think every film has to explore something entirely new to be good. I feel like it can still... Yeah. You know, because obviously every movie you see, every single one, is going to like have something in it that something else has done better. That's just how it is. There's, there's always going to be that way, right? Every superhero film you will ever see will have something in it that fucking Spider-Man yeah, 2 pushes, did better, um, right? Yeah. It's always just going to happen. So I don't feel like it's a, it's a great way to critique a movie by going, well, this film did this better, therefore this film is worse. Because I, ju- I just feel like you should judge it independently. And yeah. if when- Even the drawing inspiration from, I don't think that's a, prob- a problem. I think I that mean, you should take a movie for what it is and what's being presented to you. Like... The direct inspiration, I see more. Like, if it's done better in Singing in the Rain, and this film is obviously trying to interpolate Singing in the Rain, then I get it if it's doing an aspect of that film, but worse, that you could say, okay, you're trying to imitate this, but you're doing a worse imitation, so therefore, deducted points. I get that. 
But if it's not even trying to imitate something else, but you've seen that style of something done better somewhere else, I don't think it's fair for you to take it away from this film. I'm not yeah. fully taking away from it. When uh, all of my criticism aside, I still have this at... This might still shock a lot of people. I still have this at a 5 out of 10. I'm not saying this is a bad movie. I think it's a it's totally a serviceable movie, and if you love it, that's great. Good for you. And I I also agree with the general sentiment of, like, you can't really be too harsh against the movie just because something else already did it. I was just, in this case really left behind with the feeling of I have just wasted three hours of my time. I didn't feel like I experienced anything new and I usually had that feeling with Damien Chazelle movies. Always in like some way. There was always at least this tiny bit of that's an angle I have never seen. That's an idea, uh, a way of looking at things that I haven't been presented before in a movie. Okay. And that's but, usually a big point for me. And here I really just felt left behind. Would you agree then that this is actually more a result of your expectations? It's your fault that you didn't enjoy this movie as much because you went in expecting Damien Chazelle to do something new. When really it's not his responsibility to give you anything groundbreaking or new i don't That's think just what you expected i mean i mean ex expectations are definitely uh, one factor but i don't think i would have rated this movie highly if it was directed by anyone else if if it was like a, a blank slate director some some big name that i don't care for you know it, it's still a, a big budget movie we're talking about 100 million dollars i'm probably gonna have some association with the director at this point but, uh, obviously, I'm sure. But yeah. like, would you rate it any higher if it was, say, I don't know, Spielberg? Because it seems like a lot of your criticism and a lot of your grudge with this film is disappointment. I think I wouldn't. I, I think I wouldn't a lot of higher. M maybe it would be a six out of ten. I'm. I would take a six out of ten. But is it because you explored some um, themes in the other movies? Is that what I'm like in his own movies? It's definitely another movie. point where. I feel like he already told us the story before. A lot of the theme of uh, Babylon is this general idea of being part of something bigger, being um, like giving yourself up to the craft, to the thing you excel at. And that's the whole theme, the whole story of Whiplash. To a degree, you have that in La La Land with the way it ends no spoilers yet for that um but it's it's the same result people doing things and taking the consequences to be part of the bigger thing of the art they thrive for you could make that argument that that's the thing that in, uh, probably uh, got damien to ever get invested into making a movie about first man like, the whole thing is basically a character study about this guy who gives himself up to be part of something bigger, part of one step for me, one step for humanity, you know? It's, it's the whole thing. He did this whole story 
three times. It, that's an exaggeration, but the, he explored this theme so many times already, and I don't think that I, was this I, really I, necessary. I think it just adds like more and more to it every time. So in, in Whiplash, we have this obsession, right? We have this obsessive character that is willing to just drop everything. Then in La La Land, we have a, a romance. We have the, the point of the story is that in order for you to grow and uh, for you to follow your dreams, there are things that you're going to um, uh, leave behind. Yeah. yeah, something that you have to give up. And, um, and it's those consequences are always painted in different ways. And here in Babylon, I think it just adds a whole new plethora of stuff uh, to the to the to that same theme of like chasing your dreams and yeah. Um, Honestly, conquering. I w I think that Whiplash and La La Land have more in common than Babylon and anything before it. Yeah, because at I least agree. in Whiplash and La La Land, it is about both of them are about chasing your passion at any means necessary. You know, at the at the cost of your relationships, at the cost of your own personal time, and maybe even your love for the thing you're passionate about. Yeah. But Babylon explores that, but in a one-third aspect. Because, obviously, we still have the two different stories going on. Yeah. Yeah, and so... I think the main, the main point of Babylon is just, you know, the end of something, and the way that people sometimes they cannot cope with it. Right. Well, yeah, because um, I think that's what's incredibly smart about. Is it Jack Conrad? Is that Brad Pitt's mm -hmm. character? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I think that's the whole purpose of his character, right? So Whiplash yes. and La La Land are about obviously chasing passion and getting to somewhere, but Jack Conrad is at a point where he's at the end. Yeah, he's there. and how you accept mm -hmm. the end. So in this one movie, you have Nelly, who's you know, that, that same La La Land whiplash kind of thing, like chasing the passion by any means necessary, blah, 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 getting into it. And then Jack Conrad is obviously getting out of it or, well, coming over it, I should say, rather than getting out. So I think you have two sides of the coin there, but that second side that Jack Conrad brings is not seen in any previous Damien Chazelle film. So I, I definitely think there are new aspects here that he's doing that he hasn't done before. That's a fair, fair argument. Yeah, I, I can see it with the Brad Pitt character to to a degree. He was definitely to me the most interesting guy within the story. Yeah, me too. Um, one one more problem with the story being, I didn't care about the protagonist at all. Like throughout the whole movie, I I don't even remember his name. Um, Manuel. I do. <laughs> Manuel. You do. Oh, Manuel. <laughs> I do. Yeah, yeah, true, true. Many boy. <laughs> Many, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I didn't care about him at all. He was he was so uninteresting to me for as a character. I do think he was the most undercooked part of the film. Yeah, and he's the protagonist. That's a problem. <laughs> yeah, I think he's he stands there as the audience. It just is that type of character that is witness stuff, witnessing stuff for us. Yeah, I feel like he's kind of there for something to ground Nelly in so he's there to represent everywhere that Nelly is in her life so he's just kind of a vehicle to put the audience in perspective of where Nelly is rather than telling his own story 
which Damien yeah. Chazelle does try to do as well, but that's where I think he fails, and that's why I don't think this film is a masterpiece. You know, I don't think it's a ten out of ten or anything because I do think he undercooks mm-hmm. Manny's part in this film quite a lot in that aspect. Yeah, but I I think that already says a lot that the way you describe him as is a vehicle for Nelly. But no, um, that's my point. I yeah. think he's a vehicle for Nelly, but I think Damien Chazelle also tried to do his own thing with Manny and oh, give him did, his own storyline, but I just don't think he did that well enough. Mm-hmm. So I agree that, yeah, he's a... I enjoyed uh, Man- Manny's character. Um, I liked his progression. I liked the way that he was this vehicle of bad news for a lot of characters. Is representing, you know, a minority, a face behind the curtain. Uh, I could put it that way. And I like that aspect about him. But I think we're looking at the movie and the whole main character, side character thing in the wrong way. Because I don't think Manuel was particular, particularly the main character. Yeah, I, was I think the main character that. here. Was it's just the entire cast, you know? We have Nelly, Jack, um, Manuel. We have um, what was his name? Um, wait, let me look. The jazz. Uh, yeah, no, the yeah, the trumpet. Well, I was gonna say that I think this film has three main characters, and I think it's Manny, Nelly, and Jack. Yeah. Um, and so- then obviously, I th- I think the the trump uh, the trump trumpist. Yeah, the trumpist. Yeah. Um, he he's a side character that we yeah. do get a lot from. But mm-hmm. I, weirdly enough, he has a better arc than Manny does. Yeah. You think? Yeah, absolutely. Obviously, in his beginning, he was just part of a big um, band, right? He already knew, you know, that he was, he was better than the band. Yeah. But he's kind of stuck there. Then eventually he gets his break out of it. Then he enters kind of Hollywood, right? Scoring films and whatever. Mm-hmm. And then he, through his, himself, you know, nudging to Manny or whatever, that the camera's pointing in the wrong place. Um, just giving himself a That was a beautiful a line, by the way. Yeah. It's one of my favorite lines in the movie. Um, I really liked that moment too. Um, and then, obviously, Manny realizes that, oh, this guy could be something because he's obviously got passion, right? He's, he's enthralling to see. He gets in front of the camera, right? So then he becomes quite big. But then he realizes what Hollywood is. Once he's in front of the camera, he gets asked to do uncomfortable things, like wear the face paint that he just did not want to wear. Yeah. Right? Because mm-hmm. it, it, obviously it's very demeaning. Yeah. Right? It was a very tragic part of the movie. For it me. was Yeah, it was hard to watch. That was very difficult to see. Mm-hmm. And then he does it. And, you know, they get the shot or whatever. And then by the end of that, he realizes, I don't want to do this. It's and not worth it. it. Yeah. yeah. I preferred it when I just loved what I did and people loved me for doing it. Yeah. And then agree. he goes back to, you know, his, his grassroots starts and he goes back to the bottom again. But he feels on top at this point. Mm-hmm. So in the beginning, he's at the bottom, but he feels like he's at the bottom. Whereas at the end, he's back on the bottom, but he feels on top because that's where he wants to be. So I feel like he has a very good and complete arc, even if it is, you could condense it to like 10 minutes of footage. But Manny, he goes a lot of places. 
But I don't think he has an arc, really. Like, he starts out kind of wanting to be in film. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. On, yeah. a, on, a, on a coke high. Yeah. And then he finds himself on a set. More by accident, accident, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he also gets a job, pretty much, by accident to go and get the camera, because he's kind of just there. Yeah. And then... You know, he moves up through the ranks or whatever, pretty much also by accident. I mean, we're putting a lot of stuff by accident, right? Yeah. Because he sucks I'm... with Jack Conrad because, uh, of course, because he takes him home in that yeah, by was accident. Yeah, just there. But later we have this exposition that is a very, like, he has this type of leadership to him, right? We're sh- when he gets the striker workers to work uh, for the movie, he gets that going. He's uh, putting himself out there uh, to go get that camera, and then he waits, and then he he goes really quickly, and he has these ideas, and he's resourceful, and he makes it work for the, and he, he can keep up with the pace of a movie set, and I guess that's, that's what gets him up, not the accidents. I think he takes opportunities, and he thrives with, with them. He gets opportunities a lot by coincidence, though. Like he just happens to be there when something needs to be done rather than him pushing himself into places where he could prove himself to do something. I mean, so you he could say that about the other just... character, right? No, not so really. When he has, well, I mean, it was by chance that he got, uh, that, you know, that film part, uh, where he's, uh, playing in front of the camera and not behind the camera, just because Manny asks, asks him a random question, right? True, but that you could say that's by accident. It's the the thing with like opportunities is that you either take them and you succeed, or you you take them and you fail, or you don't take them at all. And both of these characters are able to take them and succeed and uh, just go up the ranks. You know? True, but I don't I don't think taking an open opportunity is the same as pushing yourself into a position, like. That guy did just randomly talk to Manny, but he got the opportunity to talk to Manny because of his passion, and he worked through that to get to where he was to be on that film set. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not taking that from him. Manny got all his opportunities because he just happened to be there. You know, he he didn't massively work to take Jack Conrad home. He just happened to be the only guy there that was able to drive. So they asked him to do it. If even if we consider that part being the same, where does the arc of Manny go from there really? Well, yeah. So like, anyway. Yeah. So so up until that point, even if you consider the, that the same arc Manny is tragic, is, right? Yeah, yeah. Right, Manny so... is still trying to get a hold of Margot Robbie's character and he is just climbing the ladder. And that's that's the end of his story, basically. That's all he does. No, if up until the, the up until the fifties you know? part, I guess he tries so hard to climb and to be uh, helpful to this person that he loves, and his work doesn't take him anywhere. You know, the era is gone. It's nothing. There's nothing he can do. Just like much to the the likeness of Jack Con- Jack Conrad's. Uh, um, I don't no? think so because he was an exec. You know, he was a producer. Yeah, but he so, was influenced by, you know, passion and 
passion for uh, Nelly. Well, yeah, the only re the only reason he failed was not because the industry moved on, was because he chose to love Nelly instead. Yeah, I'm just Which... like I'm just comparing the the fact that he could do nothing about it in a way. But no, he absolutely could. He absolutely could have. The reason Jack Conrad goes out of the industry is because he's just not built for talking pictures. He's not good at them, and that's kind of why he just has to phase out his time's gone. But Manny could have carried on in the industry. He was very good at what he did. Mm -hmm. His problem was he chose to go out of his way to help Nelly when he knew she was in an impossible situation. If you love someone, would you re really choose to just leave her to die? Basically, kill her. Obvious like, no, he no, wouldn't, no, 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 so he no, no, didn't no. have obviously, a choice. Obviously, it's, it's the obvious yeah. choice to make. That's not what I'm saying. But he still had the choice. Jack Conrad did not choose to stop doing films. He could, like, take classes. He could listen, you know, he could choose to listen to his uh, counterpartner. What was her name? It was not Olga, the other one from Broadway, right? He could listen to, he chose to be stuck in his ways and that's why he failed, right? And you could say the same thing about um, Manuel. It shows love. He, he couldn't help it, right? But he shows it. And that's his failure. That's his tragedy. At the end of the day, I think we're all on the same page. Brad Pitt's character was the most interesting one. It was the one that brought more thought-provoking um, yeah. uh, scenes. Especially, Which... I need to highlight, I need to clap, I need to just be in awe of Jean Smart. I love her. Uh, so she gives this monologue. She's the journalist, uh, the critic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she gives this very important monologue, beautiful yep, monologue, yep, yep. that just highlights how, you know, writers, they're just it, by the way. Just it's beautiful, written. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I actually, I have a note written down that just says um, the great scene about the life cycle of actors, artists, and critics. Yeah, it's yeah, it's probably the best scene. I wrote the eternal presence of cinema as well. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. absolutely gorgeous. I yes. love that scene. I think we can all agree it's the best scene in the film. It's the right? best yeah. scene. Yeah. 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 Okay. Cool. Just Those so five minutes it. were not wasted. <laughs> no. And I like that... Um, I like the mini arc that Jack Conrad has just in that scene. Yeah. You know, because mm -hmm. he, he obviously yes. goes in there furious because he thinks he's, you know, he's on a comeback or he's on the discovery of something new. When by the time he leaves that scene, he realizes that he's not on the discovery of something new. Yeah, he accepts he's, it. He's done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which I think is and, uh, fucking thank you crazy. For that. He thanks her for that, and yeah, it just goes for yeah. What a goddamn scene! I think we need to talk about the elephant in the room. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up, man! Shut up! Not the elephant in the beginning, <laughs> but puns. but the ending of the movie. Actually, I hated. The ending. Which one? It, it, do you mean the cut into 1950s and the everything basically up uh, starting from there? 
I like the idea of maybe him revisiting the whole thing and seeing that he's fine, you know, he he found his way, he found his family and stuff. That's that's all fine by me. I think him going into the cinema and actually watching Singing in the Rain was way too on the nose. I don't think that was necessarily necessary at Agreed. all. Even more so, my biggest problem there in the end is that it came off to me as if Damien Chazelle want I don't know wanted to praise himself into oblivion there. It the the montage of the film history basically. So you got like shots of the oh, no, of silent really like era this. up until up until the Avatar shot. I and then he cuts to flashbacks of Babylon to in my opinion insisting that what he just created is equally as important to film history as those movies are at least that's how it came up off to me and i think that's just insane insane i i slightly disagree so um so when i i agree that when manny goes to see singing in the rain is way too on the nose I do think that's incredibly gross. I think I think that's Damien Chazelle trying to like get ahead of criticism, going like, you can't say I'm deriving from Singing in the Rain because I put it in the movie, so I made it obvious that that's what I was going for. It it felt. I think he's addressing idiots. Yeah. I think he need he, or he thinks that he needs to like show. Oh, by the way, guys, if you don't know this, there's a '50s movie that's that has a. Yeah, I think you guys are being so harsh on it, like. I think the the beautiful thing about him showing seeing the rain is the plain comparison, you know, because the movie is talking about the end of an era, right? The movie is uh, talking about transition, and that's what the character is witnessing is witnessing back the end of the glory that he worked on, right? He was there, and that's. I think the film as a whole does that enough anyway. Yeah, it already did all I don't of that. Think th yeah, <laughs> I don't think he needs to add in that, oh, by the way, there's a film that's also about this same no, thing. It didn't, we didn't have, we didn't have any scene where Manny was uh, just taking as a whole the whole, like the entire journey that the movie but industry... But that's the thing, I don't think it needed to do that at all. I, I think it Nelly needed, doesn't it's get nailed that. the point. It and Jack point. doesn't get that. Because it's, it's, it's taking him back. Like, being at the studio, it's taking him back. And just remembering and being reminded of what, of, of this, of this past. It's just, I think it nails the, the, the coffin. And not the coffin. I just don't think, I, I don't think you really, like, understand the point. Uh, we get, we get what he's going for. We just don't think that he needed to do it at all like yeah. i understand why he's doing it i just don't think that he needed to do it because nelly nelly doesn't get a satisfying ending does she you know she walks off into the distance and then we find out in the paper she just died and then obviously jack doesn't get a satisfying ending he shoots himself because he has no future and then manny goes to have an unsatisfying ending as he just flees to uh, Mexico, mm -hmm. and then never mind. He comes back. He watches the movie. He's happy again. He has a family, and it just felt like, why did that need to happen? 
it was completely fine with him just fleeing to Mexico and that's the end. It needed to happen so Damien Chazelle could, could forcefully insert no. himself into movie history. No. <laughs> I No, to I, be fair, I love the montage. For that part of the movie, I was there. I was in it, okay? I was, uh, I was taken by it. I was shaking my head in the cinema, literally. I was, I was furious at that point. I was like, okay, that's just <laughs> fucked up. What the fuck? I... I didn't really care about him putting Babylon because I basically I had this film at a seven at that point, but then when I saw that he inserted clips of Tron and Avatar in the same movie, I bumped it up to an eight, um, because <laughs> that's so fucking based. So, um, I've got Babylon at an eight simply for putting Avatar and Tron in the montage, but um, by the time that he was putting in scenes of his own film. I was so on a high of just seeing Avatar that I just kind of zoned out. I was already happy at that point. When he puts scenes, I, I might need to watch it again. But when he puts scenes of his own movie, movie is, is it like between the progression from... Uh, I, I don't remember. It goes from silent until Avatar. Or is it like cut out when he's talking about singing in the rain? It might be my memory being wrong. It might be my, uh, that I remember it falsely, but in my mind, it was shots of Babylon flashbacks intercut within those within that montage. I think I, okay, my memory might be wrong, but I think it's all Babylon at the end of the montage. I think he goes through film history, and then it's a bunch of Babylon flashbacks at the end. But also, Maybe. I might be if, if it, it is wrong. that, then that's slightly. Better. I still hated it a lot. <laughs> I'm yeah, but bro, they put Tron in the montage. Are you crazy? I'm. I'm not even like the the selection of movies he made, like to represent cinema, is a pretty interesting one. There's there's a big variety. I think I'm not complaining about that at all. If he had put Scooby Doo Two, Monsters Unleashed, or Speed Racer from 2008 in that montage, I would have given it a ten. <laughs> I promise you, I would have given it a ten. Because the montage is basically so Babylon singing in the rain, Babylon, uh, Babylon, and then we have this part where he's talking about you know the coming of color, where we have shots of ink on water or milk, um, mm -hmm. and then we have like scenes from Babylon uh, that were previously in black and white, and now they have you know red, and then there's film there's so he's suggesting this transition you know the yeah i can see that like the pieces i i don't i don't think it's that like uh ego, egotistical would you say it yeah. yeah um yeah i think it's more on a point of view from you know there's there's a progression i guess it's just the progression it's not for the sake of like inserting himself and you know i'm as good as this one because he showed he showed scenes that are not like like the most beautiful scenes in the movie, I guess. Would it have taken away anything from that montage if the Babylon shots weren't in oh, there? Oh, absolutely I not. I don't think it would. Yeah. So he is inserting himself in there. He is. It, it is super egotistical. Like, <laughs> I, you can have different interpretations about um what he meant with it and what what he did, but I to me it just comes off as super I mean, egotistical. I do get that. And I hated it. But he put Avatar in the montage. He could have put his. He could have put. <laughs> he could have put a picture Just of his own way. dick into that montage, 
As long as he put Avatar in there, I would have been okay with it. <laughs> uh, it's for me. It's not big of a problem. I can see what like that implication, that possibility of you know he just thinking himself. Uh, I I don't think it is that that montage to me. By the way, establishes that Damien Chazelle wholeheartedly believes that Tron is cinema, and not only cinema, <laughs> cinema just, history. It's notably cinema history. Yeah, because it's all about the, you know, technological improvements and, you know, uh, pushing the, the medium. I was crying in this part of the movie. <laughs> I'm gonna... I yeah, was... yeah, no, no, no. I, I don't love Avatar that much. I didn't cry. That's so hilarious. We're, we're on complete, like, all of the spectrum. <laughs> I hated that moment. I was shaking my head. Crit did didn't care for a lot of it other than Avatar was mentioned <laughs> and Bia was crying. I was dying inside. I was dying inside because Manny, my man, was sleeping in the theater. Like, how could you? <laughs> how could you? Bia saw Tron in that montage and started weeping. <laughs> she was like, I knew it was cinema. They ain't believing me. Cinema is alive. <laughs> But then, when he wake, when he woke up, I, I, I begin to tear up as he was tearing up, you know. Right. So we've been talking about this movie for a very long time. Um. <laughs> so I think we should move on soon. However, there are a few things I want to get through which aren't big, huge talking points. One, you know how George, you said that uh, you didn't find Manny interesting at all really mm -hmm. um i feel that about nelly but i also think that margot robbie as nelly is electric i think she's absolutely fantastic as that character she plays it really i well, just yeah. like i i don't know i feel like the film didn't humanize her enough which may seem outrageous i thought it was going there with the um the mother scene yeah you know i feel like they i feel like he should he could have done more mm -hmm. you know it, there's like this um uh, you know how there's like emotional scenes and he cuts back into party yeah he did a lot of that there was this one scene with nelly when she's done it's like that great sequence when they're in the movie sets yeah, yeah, and you know yeah. the light of the day is going out and she drops that single tear and by the end, the director asks her, like, how did you do that? Like, how were you able to cry, like, on command and whatever? And she says, I think about home. And that seemed like a great emotional moment to just sit in. Yeah, to rest in for but a few more seconds. Damien just cuts. Just cuts yeah. into, like, glasses pouring. Three more uh, seconds landing on that shot would have helped. Yeah, I, I think so as well. Well, I do just want to quickly get to that scene, actually, because... Mm -hmm. Ruth, who's Ruth. Ruth is the female director of that film. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah. I've I wrote down that Ruth is a fantastic spice in this film. She is so sick. Every scene with her, I love. I think she's yeah. my favorite character. She, I think she's the funniest character by far. Everything she says is hilarious, and I think she. She helps bring the energy very early on that Nelly ends up adopting. And that one scene where she's just trying to 
get the one scene filmed when they first bring in the the mic the sound yeah mm-hmm. oh my <laughs> god that yeah. hurt me to watch and it was <laughs> i wrote down I, I enjoyed it a lot oh yeah same yeah. it was really funny and really stressful um yeah. i wrote down that seeing nelly trying to get that one scene makes me sympathize with those on a kubrick set so much more because you hear about people having to do you know the same shot on a kubrick film like 50 times before he's happy with it and yeah. you're like damn yeah that sucks man and then you see her try and do it, and you know what? It's like seven takes or whatever. Yeah. And you feel eight. exhausted. <laughs> and you're like, damn, yeah. them people on that Kubrick set must have been dying. <laughs> Jesus, man. And this movie also like makes the point that we should appreciate people behind the camera yes. more. Yes. Uh, especially like in the scene of, you know, Oscars just downright shitting on uh you know, uh, crew and uh, the people that make movies, the movies. Yeah. It's just, it's nice to see that homage to, to the people that are working hard uh, behind the cameras. For sure. Babylon doesn't feel like it romanticizes old Hollywood as much as Singing in the Rain does. It feels a lot more critical of old Hollywood. Yes. Mm-hmm. Which I think is very interesting because obviously it takes inspiration from Singing in the Rain, but Singing in the Rain looks on old Hollywood very fondly, you know, and and in a very, look how far we've come, but the old days were still, you know, the old days, but this film kind of says the same thing, but in a different tone. It's more like, see how far we've come. The old days were fun, but they were the old days. Yikes. I yeah. think, I mean, to a degree, obviously. I think uh, Singing in the Rain already, however, had for its time a lot of um, tongue-in-cheek to it. Oh, At yeah, least that's yeah, yeah. how it Definitely. felt mm-hmm. to me. So, yeah. I, but, but yeah, I, I see it. I see that point. The last thing I want to talk about is um, seeing Tobey Maguire makes me really happy. <laughs> just seeing toby Maguire, like you know yes it just sets off all the endorphins in my brain in my childhood three-year-old loving spider-man brain every time i see that man i'm like oh everything's okay i agree i was happy as well but to see him like his role the makeup it was just that he was the roaring 20s personified you know i adored how much fun he was having he was very evidently having a lot of fun with that character. Yeah, yeah. And I like that. I like when you can visibly see a char- um, an actor enjoying the character they're playing. For example, that part of the movie would be something that I, I would keep a little bit more short. But I loved it nonetheless. I just think like in the grand uh, um, panorama of, you know, the movie. It doesn't like play a huge role, so um, yeah. I, I little, disagree. If I had it my way, I would just make that scene pretty much the entire movie. <laughs> I <laughs> I would just have you know Tobey Maguire as the protagonist. The like, just, I, love I want a whole movie yeah. about that guy. Basically, he seems yeah, interesting. Uh, that's uh, that's kind of where I would have gone, honestly. <laughs> like I would have enjoyed the story about this really gritty dark side of Hollywood with the Tobey Maguire character way more. 
as like a main focus of the movie but obviously within the story it's just a really small yeah. side can we just get a spin-off yeah. for this guy but I, I like the i like the fact that the this part of the movie you know it's just kept underground just like the 20s and the old uh or the golden uh, era of hollywood was like back i do up. think it's quite fascinating as well that in this in this kind of sequence alone it takes a big genre twist yeah you know, like the film's very partying and sometimes obviously a little depressed but it's mostly like a uncut gems whiplash kind of situation where it's just high adrenaline pump 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 but as soon as this scene enters, it becomes like a thriller, especially when they start to go down to go down. the party. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of becomes a horror film for a moment. It's fucking horrible. Especially when they finally get down to the guy that's uh, munching on the rodents. It becomes like a fucking David Cronenberg film. And I, I really liked it. But as soon as they got out of that, I was like, that was a weird detour. <laughs> I like the tone of all of that. I wished it would have gone harder. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> I think and yeah. I think in that scene there's there's a lot of moments where the camera kind of pans to a couple of, like the two people fucking basically and the very moment they come into frame it cuts away again. I think it it kind of chickened out. If that sequence was going any any harder Toby Maguire would basically be the Joker. True. I was I was thinking the same thing. He's like he's ready. He's ready for that it. That man is insane. Damn. <laughs> Damn. You're kinda onto something there. <laughs> okay. Um, that's pretty much all I really wanted to say about Babylon. Does everyone want to give their scores? I know me and George already have, but Yeah, so five out of ten. Yeah, I gave it an eight out of ten. I'll give it I'll give it a nine. Out of ten. Very differential. And it might take. go up. And it might go up. <laughs> I guess that means we're gonna move on. So singing in the rain. Singing in the rain. Seventy years before Babylon. Hollywood already did the period piece about the transition of silent movie to talkies. Thoughts, guys. I think it I needed, mean, like, one more hour to be really cooked up. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> if singing... Okay, right. I'm not going to say my score just yet for Singing in the Rain, but if Singing in the Rain was one more hour, I would have given this film a fucking two. Two? Oh, my God. Oh, you didn't like this it This film could not last another hour. It couldn't. No, I think it just needed conflict between Gene Kelly's character and Debbie's. I just needed to see. It was too happy. They were too good for each other. I just needed <laughs> some conflict. Like, like the way it ended, I was like, "So okay, they got it. What? What more?" <laughs> I, I guess we'll we'll talk about a little bit spoiler free. Oh, and yeah. stuff. I'm so uh, yeah. sorry. So I'll just. I just wanna. Uh, I wanna get out of the way. Um, I despise every song in this film, um, except <laughs> except. For Good Morning, which I think oh. is fine. Oh my god. <laughs> you picked the one song that I really dislike. <laughs> Good Morning is like the weakest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like seeing the rain is top. There's top a tier. reason. Good Morning 
It's in a different film, and I've com- I I oh. couldn't right. I've forgotten about it, but it it plays a lot in a different film. And I f- so when they started singing "Good Morning," I got really happy for some reason, and I couldn't figure out why. And then later on, I saw a different film that I already really love, and it it plays a lot in that film. And I was like, oh, this is why I felt really happy. And I can't remember what that film is anymore. I don't know what's your beef with uh, singing in the rain. I don't get it. Tell me. <laughs> right. So my exact my exact note was, hate the musical numbers. Make them laugh was the most full of life yet joyless experience ever. I hate that song, and it pretty much sums up why I hate every other song. It is so show toony. I'm a theatre kid, right? I did theatre for seven years, which explains a lot about myself. I <laughs> love musicals. I don't love musicals that are overtly musical-esque. So when you hear a song and you're like, oh, that's definitely like a musical song. Mm-hmm. I hate them. So Same. anything pretty much that like Lin-Manuel Miranda can cook up, I don't like because I'm like, that is so horribly theatre kid. It makes me sick. And every single song in this movie feels like that, including Singing in the Rain. And Make Them Laugh is the worst example of that. I hate that song so much. Make Them Laugh was not a high point. I think Singing in the Rain, the song he sings to Debbie's character, like when he's professing his love for her. That's a good one. And I think it's about it, actually. I should I should put this out there, that I think the songs are well-made. They're mm-hmm. well-made, well-written, like and well-performed songs. Your taste it doesn't like land well. I yeah, that. but I just despise every single one of them, despite <laughs> the objective quality. <laughs> I'm just going to sing them. Every time yep. a new song came on, I would give it maybe like 30 seconds, and then I would skip 10 seconds. And then I'd be like, no, it's still happening. I don't like it. And then I would just skip it until it ends. Make them laugh. Jesus Christ. How do, you feel, how do you feel about the sound of music? So I can get like my... It's fine. Here's the crazy shocker. The only Austrian here, he, me, has never seen no. sound of music. And it's actually a, a, a running theme. Like that's, that's a running joke that no Austrian knows this movie. But everyone just thinks that... Because you're from Austria, you're going to... It's not a joke, it's a crime, what do you mean? No, do you know what? Do you know Most what? people in Austria don't know it. <laughs> Bro, Damn. it's not that good. You don't need to watch it. It's good. Like, you Stop. don't need to see It's fine. It's comfy. It's, it's absolutely it's fine. Comfy. But I, your life won't change. You, you will watch oh, this film and then will. you'll never watch it again. I promise you. As an Austrian, I obviously gotta watch it someday. I'm, I'm just postponing it. Dude, I promise you, you're going to watch it and you're going to be like, okay, that was fine. <laughs> and then you're never gonna see it in your life again to get back to the point uh the music i am not a big musical fan myself there's many exceptions to this rule but in generally speaking whenever a song breaks out in a musical i'm slightly rolling my eyes and thinking probably the story is gonna take a break now for three minutes everything everything is gonna stop and then we're gonna continue the movie. And more often than not, it is. I think, however, 
that I appreciate the songs in Singing in the Rain more on like an intellectual level of what they tell that adds to the story. So even the, the one you mentioned, Make Him Laugh. Make Him Laugh was one of the most interesting songs to me. I, I didn't care for the music of any of them basically anyways, but I think it's a really interesting point to be made about the different approaches to entertainment, to movies in general, where you have uh, just a few minutes before that, you have the whole scene with Debbie and the Gene Kelly character mm -hmm. uh, having the discussion about real acting on stage and acting for the movies mm. as this kind of, you could probably interchange those points about blockbuster filmmaking and arthouse filmmaking. It would still work out the same way, this discussion. And Make Him Laugh is a really honest, like, a really honest way to express how they feel about this blockbuster side of filmmaking, to, to show the other side of the coin where there's nothing wrong with him just falling down and then people are gonna laugh. Because uh, that's that's also part of the whole industry. Yeah, I I I like the point he's making. I just really hate the song, and also I yeah, think it's fair. very ironic that the whole song is about making him laugh, and not a single time did he do something that made me laugh. I Every single it's... thing he did was so unfunny. What I get from most of like old movies that try to be funny is that. It's just not for me. This humor was made for people that didn't experience mm -hmm. the type of humor that I'm used to. So disagree. You disagree? You don't think it's disagree. like you you think it's um universal? You think it was silent during the scenes of Make Him Laugh in the cinema back in the fifties? I think I think that was hilarious. People thought this was of course, hilarious. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not <laughs> saying that. Obviously, you know, this wasn't funny even back then. Obviously, we've evolved pretty much past this. But what I'm saying is, mm -hmm. there is still humor back then that does make me laugh now. It's not like this is the be all and end all of humor in the you know in the fifties. Yeah, it's just it's just that my baseline for most of like old 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 comedies is that they are probably not gonna make me laugh. You know, I'm not, and I take it as a or, it's or a generational way or way less. It's a generational thing. Yeah. Uh, so I don't fault the movie for it. I I do think it's massively dependent on the film. Because some films of like their humor is timeless, like you know because it's just incredibly clever and witty, and a lot of the time like you you'll hear a joke and you're like that's massively ahead of its time, and it feels <laughs> ahead of its time, when it's not. It's just timeless. Mm -hmm. Some ideas in humor are timeless, and it depends entirely on the film. Yeah. I think there's stuff even within Singing in the Rain that we can point out as kind of humor ahead of its time, and that still works, at least to me. So there's, during the opening scene, there's this whole red carpet thing, and the, the, the woman talking about all the people arriving. Yeah. yeah. And there's this... I, I guess Russian actress arriving. She just announces her as and the exotic actress Olga. 
and you're instantly like, that's so tongue-in-cheek, that's such a underhand racist thing to say, but the way she, she, they, they really pointed it out. They really, for those people who know, they like addressed it. We know this is a racist comment right now. We're kind of commenting on it you know, at the same time as mentioning it. I thought it. he was going to mention something else because there's a joke that happens literally about five minutes after that, maybe. That fucking killed me because it's such a modern joke to make. And it's um when they're showing the film, they're showing the audience. And there's this one woman that's uh looking at I've I've completely forgotten her name again. Um, but the antagonist. They're looking at her in in the film, and one of the women goes, She's so refined, I think I'll kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. And I was like, that's yeah, such a modern that. joke. Like <laughs> she's seen that. someone that's so beautiful, she's like, I might as well just fucking die. Yeah, yeah, that 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 that's definitely in the same vein. To there me. was this... like those. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, they, th those are just jokes way ahead of its time and very nuanced. So we got examples even within the movie we're talking about. So yeah, this is what I mean. So obviously, make him laugh probably did knock him dead back in the day, but yeah, now it's horrifically unfunny. But the smaller jokes. That aren't even meant to be the big laugh out loud jokes are the ones that have lasted much better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah, that's just a little little thing there. Oh, um, okay. So I just want to add this to the whole musical um section of this. I think what I hate a lot about a lot of the musical numbers is the tap dancing. No, there is I was gonna so make the... much. Tap dancing in this. No, movie. I was gonna make the <laughs> oh contrary point. It's like God. I can't get enough of it. I'm already oh. like searching tap dancing musicals from way, way, way <laughs> back then so I can watch it. Because oh. I oh, it's so satisfying to my ear no, to isn't. see it. Stop lying. To you see it, no, it. to ear. No, I love it. Uh, genuinely. You hate it. Stop lying to me. Oh, God. No way. It's so good. It's so smooth and uh. It's an auditory experience as well because they're George. literally like making the rhythm. You know, it's like George, a phrase please. itself. Yeah. Tap dancing. I'm, or no. I'm gonna. Uh, I'm gonna sit in between. No, 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 I, yeah, I'm. I'm not gonna <laughs> take a def definitive point on tap dancing forever in every instance. <laughs> the tap dancing sucks, dude. For the for the tap dancing numbers in this movie, I love them for the fact that they are so perfect. Like just the the bodily acting, the body acting within that, the control they have over their bodies is something you wouldn't really see in any actor i feel like today like who could who could pull off any of those single scenes nowadays yeah. without they probably put people out there dance yeah. but like actors yeah, yeah. actors like they would have to learn yeah. it right yeah you you wouldn't get like gene, gene kelly wasn't like a dancer they hired who could all who they could also teach 
acting to, you know? He was like the Brad Pitt of its time. You couldn't stand Brad, put Brad Pitt on a stage and then he would just do that. <laughs> it's, it's insane. There are also long takes in it. So there's, for times, it was like one minute, just keeps on going, keeps on going, no cut at all. They are constantly looking like they're most, <laughs> they are the most happy whilst yeah, the doing smiles, it. Yeah, the smiles, dude. I would like to just quickly interject because I kind of have something to disprove here. Gene Kelly, uh, I only know this because I am a nerdy theatre kid, was okay. a excellent choreographer and tap dancer even before this film yeah i'm not yeah i'm not saying that he learned it for this no but that's I'm what i'm saying. saying so like it doesn't really shock me that he you know he's so great at it because he was doing it on broadway for years so it's you know it's not like he had to learn something for this yeah. film but tap dancing is not a yeah, thing fair. right now it's uncool right i i'm asking what is him. It is very fucking fun <laughs> cool. It shouldn't. Uh, to be fair, to be fair, my girlfriend used to teach tap dance to kids. She's the coolest. And she no longer does it. But I think she realized that it was we a should horrible bring back, way to live. We should bring back tap dancing into no, movies, he into musicals. We gotta get rid of it. Ima Just imagine like hip-hop beats with tap dancing. Oh my god, oh. don't do that. Um, if I, I put on a new Jay-Z record yeah, or some EVM and, 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 and I hear tap dancing I'm reporting him I'm just I'm just imagining a music video right now of like Eminem <laughs> tap dancing whilst rapping uh, it's just I, I, I got a lot of uh, I got a lot of pleasure out of the tap dancing in the movie I will say though on, on to be fair on the topic of the tap dancing and the dancing in general um gene kelly and um o'connor mm -hmm. had been doing it for years you know they were very so. yeah. yeah they were experts in it but debbie reynolds at the time only had three months <gasps> um to wow. learn what wow. these two had been That's doing crazy. for decades really for at that point um because gene kelly at that point was 39 yeah, um, which one he looks fantastic for but um yeah he had been doing it for at least two decades and she had three months to learn all the choreography for this stuff um which i because i read into a bit of the background of this film and there was a bit in her biography her autobiography sorry where she speaks about doing this film and she says how much pressure she was under to do these scenes because you know gene kelly came in an expert he had choreographed all of it himself yeah. so not only do you have to do this but the choreographer of the dance is your co-star and director so it's not like you have room to not be perfect because he's there judging every single thing you do Reading on some of the background of this as well, it was apparently super torturous. Yeah, that's to what do. Um, apparently, I think I think it was singing in the rain, but it could have been the one where the three of them are tap dancing. I cannot remember. I think it's uh, in Good Morning. Yeah, is yeah. that Good Morning? Yeah. Um, one of the songs anyway took fifteen hours 
to shoot just one song and even the other director stanley donan that's his name Mm -hmm. and the other director stanley donan was notably said that gene kelly was incredibly hard to work with because he was so precise about the numbers so 15 hours for one song that's not one scene you know not one huge sequence not one good day of filming that's one song that's like four minutes Mm -hmm. i think that's kind of what you're seeing on screen i mean that's the exact perfection on screen that i was talking about where i just admire the incredible yes it's impressive i i can agree takes yeah i can agree that it's impressive i don't enjoy it but it is impressive Mm -hmm. you know i can recognize the absolute skill in that but yeah. also, you know, when you was like, no actors would do this now and stuff like that, or nobody probably could. I don't think mm-hmm. they could because they couldn't, you just simply couldn't put an actor through 15 hour shoots for one song anymore. You just couldn't do it. You know, publicity would shut you down immediately. I mean, not, not in one, <coughs> <laughs> in one go. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, it's pretty horrific to see how awful it was to film a lot yeah. of these scenes compared to what the scenes are, which, you know, are happy and bubbly and full of life. You know, look, whereas, you know, mm-hmm. if you hear about Kubrick trying to film The Shining... Yeah, you know, I, was, I was thinking of exactly that. The process that. is grueling, especially, you know, the one scene where, you know, she's walking up the stairs like 150 times or whatever. You mm. know, obviously, that's a super grueling process. But when you see the, the scene... It feels like it, right? The scene feels exhausted. You feel, you know, a lot of weight. Whereas, yeah, whereas you know, in this, mm-hmm. it's the complete opposite. It's a complete contrast to the experience of filming the scene, which is a very, very interesting. Interesting phenomenon, for sure. Also, to add that Debbie Reynolds was 19. Yeah. 19. And all that pressure wow. to do this. It's it's incredibly impressive on her behalf. I think more than Gene Kelly or yeah to push um, through it. O'Connor. There was this very beautiful moment in the movie that I I don't see. I didn't see much of the point of when he talks about oh we're going to do the modern part of this film and this is like this is my take on it. And it's explaining to the to the executive. I think it's the producer from the studio, and it it cuts into this like whole story of a guy that gets into a town and he doesn't have much to his name, and he goes up the ladder in. I don't think it was Hollywood. It was Broadway because the song it was about Broadway. Mm-hmm. Then there's this beautiful scene, in a, when he sees a woman in a party. And it cuts out to a scene where they... Oh, yeah. I, I have a note on that. Yeah. Spoiler discussion. <laughs> Spoiler discussion. Okay. <laughs> but what did you guys uh, think about that part of the movie and how it inserts into the, Is that the, the entirety um, of the, the story? The song Gotta Dance. Or am I thinking of something else? No, 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 no. I don't... No, oh, yeah, yeah. 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 Wait, it, it is kind of... There is like uh, the gotta dance number before that, and mm-hmm. then it kind of breaks. Yeah, and then it, it comes breaks back it up, to end and it, then right? there's this dream sequence. 
And I think B is talking about yeah, that dream dream-esque sequence. sequence before we return to the to the gutter dance. I'm gonna be real. I skipped that entire section. How? How? Way? How did you skip? How dare you? That, that's like the best part of the movie. I didn't like it. I just. I normally I don't ever press the skip button when watching a film because I feel like even the smallest details are, are you know they have a purpose. Mm -hmm. But this just felt like it didn't, and it was Gene Kelly giving himself time to just spend in front of the camera. Yeah. And I just, I just didn't feel interested in Gene Kelly doing a little vanity project in the middle of this film. So I ended you know up just skipping through a lot of it. You know what the purpose was? It's for you to give me your thoughts on it, you know? You should have watched <laughs> yes. it so you could have given, my, <laughs> given me your, your thoughts, but... Zayt, what did you think about like the insertion of this entire like um, scene? I'm not only talking about the dream sequence, but the the entirety uh, of the the story of this. You know. Yeah, I think it's super interesting because think about the fact that we're talking of a 1952 movie, and the whole movie itself is already a meta movie about filmmaking and then within that movie about filmmaking they decide to make a movie about playing an actor it's yeah. it's a whole additional meta level to it and you would expect it of a modern film i definitely didn't expect it the first time around of a 1952 film i think the whole sequence is fantastic it has probably my favorite set in there. The one where it zooms super far back. I don't know what giant crane they had for mm -hmm, that. Yeah. And there's all those neon, neon signs. signs. People are, are running into it. It's a fantastic image. Yeah. That that imagery is just stunning. I was really surprised as and, well. Yeah, and uh, all in one take again. And then the whole dream sequence happens which has probably the greatest dress to ever True. exist in film. I mean, and the greatest the wind machine. That thing? <laughs> yeah, yeah, how? And I, I'm, I'm so speechless by that scene. The, the, um, I don't know how thin you can make <laughs> a dress for it to be able to have like this 20 meter long cape yeah. and it all flies into the air as if it was nothing. I wonder how they set up I'm the wind machines. If it's like one on each side of the set or one up I don't sucking think so. up. I I was <laughs> I think there were yeah I, I, I looked at it re really closely this time around. I think uh, the set had this these steps and I think that the steps on top of it were just like a grid and air was blowing throughout mm, it upwards okay. she was mainly more in the back standing a little higher just ever so slightly and i think that's enough where they could they could like hide a grid basically okay. in the floor and have all of the the blowers underneath that but it's still it's such a great illusion i mean how yes. the hell and it's i think they milked it a little bit too much Okay, I would then again like cut one minute out of it, but just the dance of like 
the the fabric and these two lovers you know just intertwining separating and dancing and it was mm -hmm. it was very beautiful i i love the scene it's also a great great visual with like you could say that in this story like this film inside the film mm -hmm. in this story his character is kind of he's almost under her spell in that moment he's completely dreaming away yeah. and the dress kind of catches him and wraps yeah. around him towards the end of it before it releases him back into reality so i, I took that all as him falling in love mm -hmm. him being yes. under her spell absolutely the first shot of that scene is still burnt into my my memory it's it's so you know it looks like a painting um because much of it is but just the the position of the subjects it's it's really beautiful i love it since you mentioned earlier that you would have cut it a little bit shorter i agree however i wrote down that this movie is super high pace so for considering again that it's 70 years old mm -hmm. a lot of movies particularly pre maybe pre 2001 a space odyssey before that movies tend to feel too slow for my taste nowadays okay. and whenever a movie manages to still feel kind of high paced nowadays i'm super excited about it I would say the same thing about something like 12 Angry Men, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah, 12 Angry Men. But is... yeah, this this one really, stuff just keeps happening. It keeps moving forward. I I was very, very entertained by the editing. And so, yeah, this is super high-paced movie yeah. for the 50s. I sh it's, it's, maybe it's my taste in romances that there needs to be some kind of conflict. But yeah, I would take in a little bit of that time from that whole sequence and give it more to flesh out their relationship. Even if it doesn't go to conflict, but, you know, just give it a little more umph just for me to be happy that they're together in the end. Um, because I didn't feel yeah. the ending that much. One thing I also wrote down is just this general concept of singing in the rain. This very simple concept of you are so emotionally overwhelmed oh, yeah. that the thing that everyone basically associates with bad mood, the rain, the bad weather, is it, it just doesn't matter anymore to him. And he goes out dancing and singing in the rain, as blatant as you can put it. So I think that that core idea is just a super strong emotional core concept for a love story. I still think and agree with Beer that the love story itself was underdeveloped, but the the premise of it is fantastic. I, I like the points that they make, you know, um, and the way that they're trying to represent these emotions. Um, I just don't think it's... It, I, mean, I, I just didn't care for the overall relationship as a whole, because I can relate in, to a certain point with those feelings. So I guess I'm gonna I'm going to be the guy that's going to be the guy but you're always the guy <laughs> i don't love the relationship for a different reason mm -hmm. it makes me uncomfortable is it the age gap um it is the age gap yeah mm -hmm. because debbie reynolds is 19 at the time gene kelly 
is 39. So exactly 20 years older. She is barely an adult. Mm -hmm. And obviously she's come into a movie where Gene Kelly is not only her co-star, but also the direct, the guy making the film. The movie, yeah. So, and I don't know if you guys know much about Gene Kelly in his personal life. Not at all. Yeah, he definitely had a proclivity for younger women. Oh. Yeah, like much younger women than himself. So, seeing him kind of act out that personal proclivity that he has in his film kind of makes me uh, jittery. Yeah, I would... I thought about that with Brad Pitt in uh, Babylon. I don't know if you guys are like updated on the Brad Pitt stuff, but uh, there's accusations of him being abusive towards his children and Angelina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Allegedly. Allegedly, yeah. Uh, I'm not saying it's true, of course, but because, you know, it was not taken to court and, you know, witnesses, but it just lingers you know, in your mind, and whenever he was uh, yelling at his love interest in in the movie in Babylon, I just kept thinking, okay, this guy, like, where is he taking this energy from? In a way, it's yeah. like, is he is is acting, but where is this um, motivation uh, for acting coming from? Because um, the thing is, Gene Kelly, incredibly attractive man. Well, obviously, at the time of this film incredibly popular, incredibly talented. And I always kind of likened him to like a Leonardo DiCaprio of his day. Mm-hmm. But also if, you know, I'm sure we're all aware of the Leonardo DiCaprio <laughs> 25 rule. Yeah. yeah. Where he's never dated someone over the age of 25. And mm-hmm. his latest uh, girlfriend... Um, is 19. Is again a 19-year-old, yeah. And the age gap is pretty much well it's more isn't it he's nearly 50 yeah um, whereas yeah. gene kelly was nearly 40 but imagine if you know leonardo dicaprio made his own film you now directed it you know helped write it all that and he put himself as the main and then the love interest as a 19 year old it would feel very odd yeah yeah, yeah. and that's how i feel seeing this yeah, I didn't have so watching the movie. I didn't have that information. I was uh, so I didn't know about Gene Kelly's proclivity to you know date uh, younger women, yeah. and I could see <laughs> that she was younger, but not that young. Um, so my main concern with the relationship in the movie it's standing from a theoretical, I guess I could say that um, point of view, not uh, a meta point of view you know like from the outside and having information from their lives yeah there's a because i did read uh chunks of her autobiography you know the part specifically where she talks about this film she speaks about the the end where they kiss Mm -hmm. um and she says that that you know she expected a kiss but what she didn't expect was for Gene Kelly, a man 20 years older than her, to stick his tongue down the back of her throat 
Jesus. And she she felt incredibly violated by it. And she said, you know, she had never experienced anything like that before. You know, she had never properly kissed anybody. She was still very young. Yeah. So mm -hmm. for this to be, you know, for to, to be cursed with the knowledge of knowing that this was the first time she had a proper kiss and it was from someone who had a very powerful stance over mm -hmm. her in a in a place where she couldn't really say i'm not comfortable with doing that yeah it it it, it makes me feel horrible and i just feel like a romance wasn't necessary for this film it uh, you know it i yeah. think it wasn't it, i think the way that it was done it yeah it might have might as well not been there the film is a meta commentary you know on obviously cinema and all that and moving from silent pictures to talking pictures and i feel like to be honest it would have been better without a romance because it would be the subversion of you thinking the romance would be between him and again forget lena, lena. right i've yeah, just yeah. remembered her character's name is <laughs> lena isn't it yeah, yeah yeah you have that expectation of oh these two from the very beginning because they show up to the red carpet together don't they and you think oh these two are the couple because even when he's talking about when he first met her, he was infatuated by her. But it was only when, you know, he became something that she became interested in him. And that's when he kind of didn't care anymore. So I feel like it would have been just incredibly smarter for you to think like that was going to be a romance. And then it wasn't. And it's a complete subversion. Mm -hmm. But for them to do that and then also add an actual romance... I just felt like it was a bit too much. And given the context of everything, I felt like it was also a weird, gross violation. Yeah, it felt like it was a romance that was placed because uh, the audience loves to see mm -hmm. love on the screen, you know? Just yeah. felt like that. Yeah, because yeah, that, honestly, that could just be it. It could have just been, you know, a convention of the time that every film pretty much has to have some kind mm -hmm. of romance. Yeah. But, I think so, yeah. But, you know, <laughs> even still... Doesn't change the fact that it would have been better without it. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I will say that, one, it grew on me. I didn't like it for the first few minutes. And the more I watched it, the more I enjoyed it. And also, I didn't... So this was the first time I had ever seen this film. I had only ever known the songs Good Morning and, of course, Singing in the Rain. Mm -hmm. But I had never actually seen this. And I don't know what I expected this film to be about, but it was not this. I didn't think <laughs> it was about, like, the the transition period between silent pictures and talking pictures. That's just not at <laughs> all what I thought this film would be about. So, yeah. I guess it subverted my expectations in that way as well, unintentionally. I have a few more little notes on it. I love the whole sequence where he says... I'm not able to without the proper setting. And then he goes into the stage door and kind of shows us the magic of movie coming to life with him just step by step activating basically the lights, the smoke, the different settings yeah. within and just this general feeling of giving birth to movie magic. I also enjoyed quite a lot that scene. Yeah. I love the whole scene with them fighting during the filming of that love scene 
I don't know if you remember. Oh, this I is do. the last yes. scene they they film before the talkies kind of become a yeah. thing. I really enjoyed that. I think that's the scene where the film sold me. Such a wild thing to do, but it it hit me and it works flawlessly. It's still entertaining. It's a very funny and, bit. Yeah, and it fully explores the possibilities of what the differences are because there's nothing equivalent to this you could really do nowadays with modern film yeah yes no i understand yeah i think it does take full advantage of the subject well as much mm -hmm. advantage as it could have taken in the time given all the context that it had yeah to yeah, be honest yeah. i think that's one of the things that babylon has strong in its corner it's that it could do this film again but with the added context of like 70 more years. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's one of Babylon's failings, to be fair, is that it didn't take enough advantage of having seven more decades on this film. Yeah. You know, it could have done a lot more, which it just kind of didn't. You guys think? I feel like... Yeah, I think I've, Babylon honestly, was better like Babylon... at portraying the transition than Singing in the Rain. If, really? like, considering like you know the inspirations and all yeah i mean true totally. but i guess that's just because people get better at storytelling and finding new ones and things i mean you know you learn <laughs> as you build yeah the but medium. like if we're gonna like take it for what the movies are yeah I'm, yeah that's fair i think that i just <laughs> i think honestly babylon shouldn't have been about the transition from silent films to talking films I feel like it should have just picked a different moment in cinema where the technology changed. Like color? And it was, yeah, or... like color mm. and stuff like that. And the challenges they would have had to have from filming for black and white. Because filming for black and white is not just filming a set and then, you know, it's filmed in black and white. It doesn't work like that. The way you have to apply color theory so everything works, you know, in black and white is incredibly smart it's something people don't really think about they think you know just because the cameras were black and white that you could just go in there dressed in whatever mm -hmm. colors and the set could be whatever colors and it would just turn out black and white flawlessly like they had to create contrast and all that stuff so when it went to colors so they had different challenges on how to do things especially in the costume design yeah um department so i feel like they could have chose a different period where things happened isn't it um the wizard of oz that's the first film filmed in like technicolor or something like that it's it's definitely the the one who's known for it maybe there has been yeah. like experimental yeah. ones before so that. that could have been babylon's the jazz musician you know rather than babylon again expressing the jazz musician which singing in the rain mm -hmm. does so I feel like that would have been a, a nicer way as well for it to distance itself from Singing in the Rain, where it could be derived and inspired, but doesn't seem like it's trying to do the exact same thing. Just a little thought that I've had since talking about Singing in the Rain right now. Mm -hmm. One thing is for sure, this was a super influential movie. Oh, absolutely. Even if, if not talking about Babylon or Damien Chazelle as a whole, the the one thing I wrote down with the the proper setting also hugely reminded me of a scene that happens in Birdman of 2014 where Ed Norton's character kind of gets asked why something wasn't a problem for him on stage and he just replies because nothing is a problem for him on stage he's an actor <laughs> and and I just 
yeah, I I think this this movie will echo through cinema history forever. Also, I do just want to point out I find it I find some of the commentary in this film really ironic. Like, you know, you know in that scene where Gene Kelly's character is getting um ragged about by fans and then he jumps into Debbie Reynolds' car. You know, and it's obviously a violation of her personal space or whatever, so she's trying to get him out the car. But then, you know, she finally tells the police officer and then the police officer recognizes him. And then, you know, he's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And it's obviously trying to say that, you know, if you're famous enough, you can pretty much get away with Get away anything. with anything, yeah. <laughs> and Gene Kelly himself in real life was famous enough to have got away with a lot of stuff. You know, with mm-hmm. being pretty abusive on set. Because he's Gene Kelly. So, of course, he got yeah. away with it. So I do feel like the commentary is really ironic on that. <laughs> it's backfired. So ratings. I give it a 7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. George? I have it at an 8 out of 10. Okay. I gave it the lowest then out of all of us at a 6 out of 10. Yeah. I 6 out of 10 to me just means it's a good movie. It is above average. But I just don't think it's anything great enough for me to care to rewatch mm-hmm. ever. You know, I'm, I'm giving it the same because of the tap dancing, you know? Yeah, that that <laughs> I can't go through that again. <laughs> I can't. So I guess this is a good time to talk about La La Land. La La Land. So the best picture well, winner, am I right? Best picture winner, <laughs> La La Land. Are we instantly starting off this way? <laughs> what a great introduction. Okay. I think... Honestly, to be fair, I think that's a good place to start since, you know, it's not technically about the film. Yeah, um, and it's, it's not meta. spoiler territories at all, is it really? It's real life. <laughs> spoiler. <laughs> You're not updated. It's, it's spoiler for real life. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. If you haven't caught up spoiler to 2016. Spoiler for the Oscar <laughs> Awards of 2018. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, um, what do you guys think about that? About that whole situation. Do you think like it deserved to win for one? It could have won. But Well, we know it could have won, but do you think it should have won? Over Moonlight. Cause if you remember at the time that was the conversation. Yeah, right? yeah. It was it's we knew it was obviously between La La Land or Moonlight. I don't even remember the other nominations. <laughs> True, me neither. <laughs> I think Moonlight was more important. Was a more important win. Yeah. I think it would have been insane if La La Land won. Mm. I I think Moonlight is near perfect. Yep. Pretty I, much. You, no, I give I give Moonlight a nine out of ten. I teeter between a nine and a and a, and a ten. I think it's I've, I think it's a it's a masterpiece, pretty much. But La La Land, I don't. I think La La Land is an exceptionally made film, but I just don't care. It's just an absolutely fine film. Well made, well acted, well scripted, but I don't feel anything. You know, I feel like I'm just watching a good movie. Whereas if I'm watching Moonlight, I feel like I'm watching a good movie, but I'm also, you know, feeling an experience. And I'm feeling emotions and it's making me think about things. La La Land doesn't do that for me. It just feels like a normal ass 
good film. Which is my hottest take. I don't like. I just don't get much out of it at all, really. Which is a shame because I love Emma Stone and um, Ryan Gosling. I love them both, and I, you know, I like Damien Chazelle. I, I especially loved Whiplash. You know, the film just before. I everything should line up for this. I love jazz, and yet nothing. Uh, to me, it's difficult to really answer that question. I have mo- seen Moonlight only once. I don't have any like personal baggage relating to Moonlight. I don't associate any great memories to Moonlight. I still have it just in my mind as a really, really good movie that I should probably return to at some point. I have seen La La Land at a point of my life where I just started to pay attention to award movies. So I went to this in um, in a screening with with subtitles, which was something that I've never experienced before. Just having the actual voices there, the the actual songs there, the actual sound there, and. It really forged my film love in in a way where the the love La La Land has itself for filmmaking really kind of ingrained in my brain. So it's it's super hard for me to make any judgment on if Moonlight should have won. It it probably won deservedly, so let's let's put it that way, because it did. But I still, I just have this spot for La La, La Land in my heart that Moonlight could never replace. That's you know? fair. I guess, I guess my point, my point is that um, when I finished Moonlight, I knew that I would have to see it again because I knew I didn't get everything I'm, I'm supposed to get from this film. You know, I just felt, I, I, I had that immediate feeling where it was like, I'm going to have to revisit this at some point. Because the, I know I'm missing stuff and there's more to get from it. But when I finished La La Land, it just felt like I got everything I needed to get from it in the first go. And I was like, okay, cool. You know, logged it. That's it now. And I guess I, I guess that's what, I, that's what it comes down to. I just feel like, you know, Moonlight had more meat and potatoes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have returned to La La Land quite a few times compared to Moonlight. Yeah, of um, course, yeah. Because largely due to that personal history with it. To me, there's I find a lot of things to appreciate in La La Land. So it's definitely not one of those movies where I returned and I was like, yeah, I, I got everything out of the experience the first time. Because just the filmmaking side of it is is really really well crafted in my opinion so there's uh, as i pointed out earlier i'm not the biggest fan of musical numbers mm-hmm. and i think that pretty much every time music comes up in la la land i feel like it serves a point that might just be in the very beginning that whole dance number of serving the point of setting the tone of instantly getting the viewers around the idea of 
you're gonna have to expect music in this. This is not just your normal Hollywood movie. And I think all of the music numbers work, work in this for me, which I couldn't say about a lot of musicals. So, you know, there's really early on the, the whole highway thing with big scale, everyone is dancing, everyone is enrolled. And I think the second musical number already is the polar opposite, where it starts off with her roommates basically trying to get her to uh, come along for mm -hmm. this party. Yeah. And goes to this point where she's already at the party and she's alone standing in front of her mirror and even the lighting cues only lights her. All of everything else is disappearing. She is the sole focus. Yeah. She's all alone. The direction is gorgeous. Yeah. And you instantly within those first 10 minutes or whatever it is, you have everything set. You have all the tonal, uh, the whole tonal spectrum of where this movie is going to play out established very early on. And I think that's just magnificent. If I were to rate this film on simply its direction and cinematography, it would be a 10. I I like I think it the way it's filmed is flawless. I I can admit to that. It, it evokes every single emotion it's going for. I will say on the on the on the top on the topic of music. I love the score of this film, but I don't like the musical numbers. So, all of the, you know, the the actual musical songs. Mm -hmm. I don't really vibe with. I don't hate them. I don't dislike them the way I dislike them in Singing in the Rain. They're fine, and you know, I can sit through them and get through them. They're musically impressive. But, you know, I just, I don't, I don't super gel with them. But the actual score, like the jazz score, is beautiful. And I really, really enjoy that. So it's weird. Like, I prefer this film when it's not being a musical. Yeah. I, I heard that criticism, actually, before where people who are really into musicals tend to not like La La Land as much as the general audiences did. Where I, I heard the point being made, it's a musical for musical haters, where it doesn't fully commit to yeah. being a musical. And I, I can see that point, but at the same time, I am a musical hater. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I guess point proven, because I love musicals it, and it's I don't me. like it as much. <laughs> Yeah. So yeah, I guess maybe that criticism does have some ground. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe maybe it just does. It's one of those. Yeah, that no, that's fair. Um cuz this is the thing, I have this reputation that I hate this film, which is false. You know, people are lying on my name. I don't hate this film. I just guess I guess because I didn't watch this when the whole Oscar thing happened. You know, I watched it for <laughs> the first time last month. Mm -hmm. And I guess I had all that hype you know, of I heard for years, you know, it was between Moon Moonlight and La La Land and all this. But by the time I had actually seen La La Land, I just didn't get it. I didn't get why it was so hyped. You know? And I guess maybe mm. it's a retrospect thing because say when, you know, when Joker came out, everyone was like, Oh, it's one of the best comic book movies of all time and there was a huge hype around it. And now, if you ask pretty much anyone what they think of Joker, they're like, yeah, it's okay. Yeah, there's always you know, a like, general hype. Yeah, the, the, as time evolved, people became less crazy about it. 
and I think that's what happened with La La Land, but I was only able to catch it on that downdrift. I never got the time where there was a huge hype around it, so I never got to be truly excited about it. I'm not trying to say that I see the movie for what it actually is. Because obviously it's important to many people, including you, George, you know, obviously you love it a lot. So I would never want to take that mm -hmm. away. And I don't want to say that it's anything less than what you think it is. Because it, obviously oh, yeah. it, it I, could I be. wasn't implying. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know that. I'm just saying um, I don't want, I don't want to make that jump. I just feel like if you were there at the time, it would have worked a lot better, which I oh, just definitely. wasn't. You know, I missed the La La Land hype train. I watched it in the year it came out, before the Oscars. So it was a pretty exciting experience to have. It was probably, I don't want to say it's my first musical because there's always like musicals going, you know, on TV and you catch one and you just mm -hmm. sit there and you pass the time. But I never took musicals seriously until La La Land. It was, for me, it was a genre that it was comical. The songs just fell short. You know, it was a laughing. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I get that. When La La Land came, it felt refreshing for someone that di didn't grow up with musicals to have this modern take on a genre that for me was so outdated. It was very refreshing. So La La Land sits very close and in a very special place in my heart. Not only for the fact that it was the musical that, you know, that worked, the musical that made me feel something, but also the thematic of being someone who has a dream and wants to pursue that dream and the everything that entails that you know that experience it just mm -hmm. it hit close to home because i do dream i, I do, i'm not saying that you don't dream, I do dream. <laughs> maybe you don't <laughs> <laughs> but <clears throat> it's i felt seen you know i i just felt yeah. that there's there's this movie that's giving like a voice to people who are you know delusional and uh, that think that think that their dreams are very delusional, and that you know they have these people telling them make rational choices, get that education, don't yeah. give up on your dreams, kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, you can't make exactly. it. And I think I think La La Land was special in that regard. I teared up in the audition scene when. Uh, Mm -hmm. she's talking about her aunt, I think. Um, and, you know, uh, foolish are the ones that dream, crazy as, that, as they may seem, blah, blah, blah. I don't remember the exact quotes. I, I used to know by heart the, the entirety <laughs> of the soundtrack. Not soundtrack, but, you know, the... The original songs, yeah. Yeah. Um, La La Land is special in that regard. It gave me a voice. It showed me that musicals can be more than just silly songs. The the songs can actually be fun and meaningful. Not that the other ones are not, but I I personally didn't find meaning in uh, songs like you know my favorite thing in the sound of music. 
this movie is very special also because it joins another part of a passion that I have for art that it's music and the way that he spoke about jazz also awakened uh, I, I, I already had some interest in jazz but I didn't understand fully like what was up with people liking this genre so much you know uh, jazz is like this acquired taste much more much like musicals were to me and this movie also broke that uh that stigma that was a little bit unbroken by uh whiplash but la la land just i don't know it's the way that sebastian was putting the songs and you know explaining like the love for his love for jazz it just um made me think about it more and appreciate it more but as you guys were saying the production in this movie is absolutely fantastic like the colors the the settings it's just everything is beautiful the cinematography it's, i would agree that some um like dancing scenes are not, you know, it's not like singing in the rain level, but they still have a special place in my heart because um, they speak to me in a different way. So yeah, that's my La La Land yeah. thoughts without getting to the spoilers yeah. about, you know, the ending and the underlying uh, romance that goes within it. I want to point out, uh, we talked about Margot Robbie's performance earlier. I really want to point out Emma Stone's performance in this. I think Emma Stone's performance here is just one of those magnificent, incredible performances where your attention is fully on her just by the way, by the things she does with her face. Yes. So there's this scene really early on where she's at an, at an audition, she's in the middle of an emotional scene and someone in the background just knocks at the door and interrupts everything. She has to stand there, hold her emotion, and it never cuts. It always stays really close to her. It, we just go closer and closer to her face and all you see throughout that scene whilst other people are talking, stuff is happening, is her reaction and her overcoming of that moment. Yes. And in in the commentary track, Damien Chazelle actually talked about that they shot cross coverage for that sequence. It was always meant to be just staying on her face, but they shot it just in case. And once they just saw the first take of that, they knew that they wouldn't need it ever. It's just mesmerizing. Yeah. Emma Stone was really hypnotizing in the movie. I think the highlight is that audition scene. For me, that scene yeah. is wonderful. It's just... The second audition, you mean? Yeah, there's two of them, right? Yeah, yeah. the one I was talking about is the really early oh, audition oh, okay. that fails. And then, then she then has the second one scene. where she sings. Okay, okay, yeah, okay. Exactly, okay. where she's getting discovered. Yeah, but... Even when she uh, is taking uh, up the screen with with Ryan Gosling, I think she shines um, like a lot more. I'll never forget the eyes, you know, that she 
shows in the end um just hits so hard doesn't it i don't know if you guys want to go into spoilery um discussion sure i guess we yeah. can spoiler 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 discussion they are not together <laughs> um <laughs> it's just that you know looking at the one that got away and imagining what life could have been it's it's all all of that it's translated in her look in her gaze and i think everyone can agree that that ending is just beautifully done and executed it's yeah. magical to me just you know from the montage to the um you know the way that cuts back into the you know reality um mm -hmm. it's just even even the presentation within this movie like we already talked a bit about directing a huge part to why i love this movie is just presentation because presentation mm -hmm. is always super important to me and even within that montage you have so beautiful details like the idea of having parts of it play out as an eight millimeter home video and have those two guys emma and um, ryan literally sit down with us to watch their own alternative life yeah. is such a beautiful imagery it is did you like the the ending uh crit um sorry yeah i wasn't speaking i was just letting you you two kind of uh mm -hmm. fawn over this movie um because i like hearing people love films even if they're not films i personally attach to yeah <laughs> but i did the more you talk about the reasons why you love this film, even to the specificities of the ending where, you know, she doesn't, well, they don't end up together. It only makes me think of a different film. Which one? Yeah, this, I've discovered this just during this talk. I think one of the things that makes La La Land so difficult for me to love is the film Tick, Tick, Boom <laughs> from 2021. <laughs> Because I didn't like that. <laughs> I think Tick Tick Boom does everything that La La Land does, but better. The directing, no. It is not as well directed. I will I will grant that. But uh -huh. you know, at the end of the day, <clears throat> Damien Chazelle is a better director than fucking Lin Manuel Miranda. Mm -hmm. But obviously, it's not a Lin Manuel Miranda product, really. You know, because it already existed vastly decades before he was around. Um, but it goes through the same thing with, you know, the characters that you follow the entire time not ending up together. But she's still there for, you know, the final act. And it's about, I mean, the whole movie is about him trying to do the play or, well, the production that we know is going to fail. We already know it's going to fail. Because we understand that the the production he's creating in that film isn't the one that we're seeing him perform in present. Mm -hmm. So we know it doesn't get made. So you're kind of just waiting for it to fail, which I think is a an interesting storytelling device. I have that information. I, I, they don't say it in the movie, right? Like, they don't give a preface. But you see him perform yeah. a piece, and it's a meta piece about 
him making, making a yeah, yeah him making so, a play so, yeah. you know that the play that he's making obviously isn't the one that he's doing in the current time yeah, yeah. because you know the songs don't I match up the story isn't the same yeah. Yeah, yeah but i think the thing that tick tick boom does way better than la la land is the music i could i think the music because obviously the music lin mm-hmm. you know lin manuel didn't make the music for tick tick boom you know those songs were written decades before and I think, you know, aside from Beer's obvious hate for this film, <laughs> I couldn't stand the songs. I'm so those sorry. Those <laughs> songs perform exceptionally well. And it's proven because, you know, it's lasted a very, very long time. I think the songs themselves serve the narrative very strongly. You know, where if the songs weren't in the film, the film doesn't really work. Yeah. But in La La Land, if you remove the songs, the film still pretty much works. I disagree. I don't I I think if you remove music, obviously it doesn't work. But the songs, like the actual musical yeah, because numbers. The songs in Tick Tick Boom are like part of the script in a way. They're like this telling is what information. I mean. But and I think it's I, it's different, but not, you know That's an integral part of a musical. Yeah, but the same thing could be said about several musical numbers within uh, La La Land. Like the audition thing, that song is the whole scene, basically. Uh, the second audition. Or the whole pop side story song. But, you know. Well, okay. Here's, here's, my, here's my argument on that. Especially with the audition scene. If that audition scene wasn't that song and it was just emma stone acting and it 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 would have been it would have been a properly scripted scene i think it would have been better i think the songs actively harm the film you know because we were saying earlier that it's a it's a musical for people that don't really like musicals i think it's very clear that um damien chazelle doesn't want to make a, a a full musical you know he, he he obviously is very reserved about that because you know the musical numbers aren't overtly musical except for the very first one oddly enough i think that sticks out a lot more than the other ones do mm-hmm. and i think a lot of the scenes where there is a musical number it would have just been better if it was just the actors just acting whereas if you take pretty much any other very you know, classic musical or even just Tick, Tick, Boom, which obviously isn't a classic. It came out like two years ago. But if you've removed those songs and added in just scripted dialogue, it wouldn't have been better. And I, I guess that's one of the one of the reasons why La La Land doesn't hit home for me is, you know, as a fan of musicals, I expect the musical numbers to raise the film in some way, you know. I expect the film to be judged on one behalf, but then I expect the songs to add points, you know, to the to the score. That's why why Singing in the Rain was disappointing to me and it only got a six. If the songs hit home for me, it would have got a seven or an eight, maybe. But La La Land does the exact same thing. You know, that I love the, the actual story. It's the musical part I have a big problem with. I think you could make, like point out a difference here between like what's the role i haven't watched many musicals okay so i'm not very versed. that's fair yeah so 
I think we could point point out the difference between the songs that are serving a movie in a informational and emotional way, and the songs that are just doing it for maybe just emotion and to evoke a very specific emotion from the audience. Um, and I think La La Land does that part really well. I think you could argue that some of the songs are a little bit just dressing, right? Is that what you're trying to say? I guess so, but not really. I mm-hmm. just think they're in there because Damien Chazelle wanted to try something new. I don't think he fully dived into it the way that he should have. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't. I feel like because he wasn't experienced in making musicals, I don't think he truly maybe understood the purpose. I I feel like when he was making this, he thought that, oh yeah, a musical number would be good here. And then inserted one. Mm-hmm. Rather than... You know, when you watch a musical, it feels like it's building to a musical number. Where this doesn't feel like that. It just feels like he's inserted musical numbers where they would fit best. To me, they always felt very organically. No, they felt organic, obviously. But what I'm saying is, you know, when... They weren't needed. Yeah, they just weren't necessary. Which I think is insane for a musical. You know, I feel like the musical numbers in a musical should feel vital. I think La La Land wouldn't be the same movie without, you know, the part of the mm-hmm. music. I think the music was a very... If you scream the name La La Land, the, fir- the first thing that goes to my mind is uh, the songs, okay? Just, you know, City of Stars, Ears to the One that dream- Who Dreams, or like, it's, it's the songs. The, the songs made it for me, mm-hmm. uh, made the movie whole. There's an interesting... side to this whole story where he had to basically fight for every single song in there the studio was hugely pushing back on the general idea of just making such a big budget musical nowadays honestly there's just yeah he he was fighting a lot for each single song in there they wanted to cut out the audition okay so i'm very 50 50 with the studio on this one i i i do get like, because honestly, if he had brought this film to me, I would have also said the songs probably are enough. Honestly, and I would have said, "Could you rewrite?" But you them? know what's funny? But go for it. Go. For it. No, I was just gonna say what's funny, like having the perspective from you know what resulted um, from you know actually putting the songs in is that you know you got a a person who didn't like musicals, and that this movie felt like you know a good entry for me to give it a try for uh, mm-hmm. the other ones yeah. to take the the, um, the genre more seriously. So even if it's like mm-hmm. half um, done musical, it's not quite there. It's It didn't go hard enough. Maybe that's the perfect point for it, for him to, you know, it's a good amount of songs. It's, uh, you know, the level of the musical nu- musical numbers are like, okay. That's, yeah, that, that's exactly yeah. it. Because... I, uh, as I said earlier, I'm not a big musical fan, and this one got me. This is the one musical I tend to tell people to check out if they ever want to, like, start off getting into musicals. It's a really easy, well-made stepping stone, and I don't really see the the point of it being unnecessary. It serves a great purpose right. with that. I, I think the reason why this serves as such a good stepping stone into musicals is because it is Damien Chazelle's step into musicals. You know, it's his first step into making one. 
So obviously he doesn't go. Full. And I think if it was really a hardcore musical, I don't think the movie would would be as well received by so many people. You know. I think it works fine, don't get me wrong, I don't think it's awful. I don't think the songs ruin the film. I think they're fine, and I can, like I said earlier, I can sit through them, I can semi-enjoy some of them and just be like, yep, that was mm-hmm. fine. I think it makes it as a greater piece, uh, just due to the fact that it's kind of glorif- uh, obviously glorifying, but kind of dreaming about that old age Hollywood, and so much of that old age Hollywood was musicals. Mm-hmm. So it just being a musical, even just slightly, definitely adds to it. In my well, I guess it's just a taste thing. I, I just find myself thinking I would have preferred it either without music at all or with it trying to be more of a musical. I think it mm-hmm. tried to find like a good medium, which I guess works for a lot of people but just didn't really work for me personally. Mm-hmm. I would have just liked yeah. it either end of the spectrum. I can see that. Yeah. 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 But I can totally I can totally respect and understand why it works for some people. Just doesn't really work for me. Also, slight observation that I've just made. This talk of La La Land has been the most peaceful and <laughs> um nice chat that we've had so far today. <laughs> it's been all yeah. I know it's and I I think I think that's because I think this is the most agreeable film yeah. that we've spoke about today. Mm-hmm. It's good. Just good, you know? One more thing on the filmmaking side of it. I love the whole structure of this movie. I think the the way it is structured is just fantastic storytelling. The we start off with this musical number establishing we're in musical world here. Then we get our first character we get our main protagonists with emma and ryan just briefly interacting on the highway in that um honking honking incident Mm -hmm. and then we follow one day of emma up until that point where the main theme first time gets introduced where he is playing it on the piano in that uh, christmas restaurant setting and then hard cut to back into the into the honking incident and we follow Ryan for this one day. After this part is over, we have a whole year of them together, so all the four seasons, until we are back in winter and it cuts forward five years to the reveal of how everything went. I think that whole structure is just so tight. It gives so many possibilities for differences in the characters, for where they overlap and for where they end up, that it's... I, I wouldn't change okay, a yeah. thing about the, the script of it. I think it's really well-crafted, yeah. I agree. There's, like, a thing that I forgot to point out now that, you know, you're talking. I remembered. Did you guys notice... Um, I haven't, like, looked much into it, but there's so many similarities, or at least to me, there are uh, between the music in La La Land and the music in Babylon. Did you guys catch like some yeah. of the tune? Uh, I would find myself just singing City of Stars and Somewhere in the Crowd during Babylon. 
because some of the tunes were very, maybe in the same key, maybe the same chord progressions, you know, uh, with slightly different, you know, um, tones here and there. But it was there were parts that were very similar, and I I found it very very nice. I I also felt that during Babylon, it was one just one of those things where I felt like oh, okay. We're, we're doing this. Again. Oh, okay. Yeah, I forgot you. You didn't like Babylon. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I well, you got my side. I I actually enjoyed the you know the callback, as you like said before. I think Damien Chazelle has the same, you know, the same overall theme, but he tackles each movie in a different way, giving it a different flavor, even adding stuff, but. I, I think it's a it's something that I love about him, you know, just the the recurring themes of you know jazz music movies and yeah and you know passion, and that's what I love about Damien, passion. For some trivia on it, Chazelle actually commented that the opening number stems from the idea that L.A. has nothing comparatively to a street life of Europe. And he always liked mm -hmm. those old school musical numbers where people are just standing around in the street and burst out into, into yeah. song. Uh, so his equivalent, his only idea was stuck, st being stuck in a highway <laughs> in yeah. LA is the only time where people gather on the street, kind of. And you even have through the car radio have this essence of music is the one thing that unites all of yeah. these people, which I thought was even was if really the music beautiful. is all different, right? Because they're all different, yeah. listening to different types of music. It's a, it's really nice. It's still yeah. the music that brings them to, them yeah. together. That's yeah. awful place in the highway. <laughs> There's a few funny bits happening in the background, so the cover band Ryan plays in in the early party where she gets them to play Iran mm -hmm. just to humiliate him. A great moment. <laughs> that band, other than Ryan, is all a real band and was the former band of Justin Herberts and Damien Chazelle. Oh. They quit the band to go to LA and just after that happened, the band actually got signed and became popular oh. <laughs> and is a successful band now. And up until the release of Whiplash, Damien Chazelle and Herberts basically were the guys who lost out yeah they lost <laughs> out and now yeah. they brought them in okay mm -hmm. he got them back for that there's a few beautiful scenes when they first walk around the i think it was the warner brothers a lot mm -hmm. yeah. you have that one scene where a scene is in action a romantic scene and they have to kind of whisper and stop for a moment those two people in that romantic scene in the background are actually the stunt uh, the stunt guys mm -hmm. yeah the stunt people of emma and ryan and they thought yeah. it would be funny to give them their big glory uh acting moments i think i heard about the, that one yeah <laughs> yeah just in the the movie that's happening in the background and a little later they also go past a big set being built or in the making and they they are just mesmerized by it and have like even this little thing with like I think Emma says, oh, I love it, or something like that. Yeah. And that's actually the set of the big final dance number in the dream montage. In the montage, yeah. Yeah. 
so they they walk past their their future of what's to come which i think is a it's a really lovely thing damn oh yeah and one more one more thing in that dream montage at the end uh, where where they imagine how their life could have been if they would have went together they also go into steps and you see a player at the piano playing the city of stars mm -hmm. melody i think it is and not only is that justin herbert's playing the piano sitting there at that moment which i think is already pretty cool to have like the composer included as a little cameo in that it is also the very first audio that herbert's ever sent to chazelle for the score so it was just you can hear this really like tiny piano it's it's somewhere in the background it's not really a well made audio file per se it's just it's just a demo <laughs> yeah yeah it was it it was supposed to be just this demo where he basically sent a voice message of that little tune that that he came up with to Damien and they used that little voice message in the final movie for that final time where it's being played. I think that's really yeah, nice. Yeah, we got the honestly. invoice, the audio. I love when any film shows its respect to um, the true creators of some of the things behind the scenes, like the music. So yeah, that little ode to the composers, really, <laughs> really a nice little touch. And I guess that's it for La La Land. La La Land. Oh, Ratings. Yeah. I guess you guys got first since you really like this film. To me, this is a 9 out of 10. Yeah, it's a 10. It just has so much value, you know? Yeah, I'm... I'm gonna give it a... You know what? I very rarely do half scores. Oh! But, Oof. very rarely, I'm going Special to give it moment. a 6.5. 6.5. Okay. I think it's better than Singing in the Rain, for sure. So I can't give it a 6. I can't put it on the same level. And it's but almost I don't as think... good as Babylon, Be... right? Yeah, but I don't think it's as good as Babylon. So, because remember, <laughs> Babylon is at a seven. <laughs> yeah, Babylon is technically at a, at a seven, but Avatar so eight. So yeah, I don't think it's as good as Babylon, but I do think it's better than Singing in the Rain. So I'm I'm gonna go with a rare six point five. That about wraps it up for this episode. So next episode, we are going to discuss the new movie Decision to Leave by renowned director Park Chan Wook. A slow but creatively crafted romantic crime story that won Best Director at the Cannes International Film Festival. Also for the next episode, we have Burning, which is the 2018 Korean psychological thriller by the director Lee Shang-dong, based on a Murakami short story featuring Yu Ha-in, Jong Jong-so and Steven Yeun. And for our third film, we'll be watching Double Indemnity, a 1944 film noir, possibly the greatest film noir of all time. Considering Decision to Leave has been heavily considered neo-noir, we thought it would be interesting to look at the golden age of this genre-adjacent style and see how it progressed in the near eight decades since its release. Directed by Billy Walder, we truly hope to see you in two weeks on the next episode, as I have been Crit, Bia, George, and we have been... Three euros per movie.